Hello, welcome back to the Rooted to Truth podcast. I'm Mackenzie Dickinson, your host, and today marks the beginning of our study through the Constitution. I am so eager to talk about this topic because I think it's one that should receive far more attention than it does currently. There are so many beautifully profound principles woven into our U.S. Constitution, and yet many American citizens never come to realize this beauty simply because they receive very brief instruction on the Constitution in school, and therefore the concepts have not saturated their minds and have not been absorbed into their lives. The more I study things such as the Constitution, the more I become excited and passionate about our country, but also become saddened in my heart, knowing that too few people hold the same sentiment. That sort of passion and excitement is what we desperately need in America if we are to experience any sort of shift towards a revival of morality and integrity. And that's really the reason why I've decided to talk about something other than the popular mainstream topics. I'll eventually get into those as well because there is so much to be said in those areas of debate. But really, I think a lot of these problems have come about because we have as a nation failed to study and learn from the law of the land. Do you know how in the Bible... Jesus is seen using scripture in order to fight the attacks upon his vulnerabilities from the enemy. The scripture I'm talking about in particular is in Matthew 14, where the devil tempted Jesus. Jesus had made a point to know God's word and to have it hidden in his heart so that when the time came for his trial, he would be ready to receive the victory that the Lord had prepared for him. He was not easily deceived into believing the twisted words that the enemy spoke because he knew what God had to say. It's the same thing with knowing the law of the land. In studying the Constitution and the words written down by our founding fathers. For far too long, our vulnerabilities have come from ignorance and or passivity, and therefore, It has been easy for legislation to be passed that stands in direct opposition to our rights. Yet we have not known it because, well, we've been unconscious as a nation. It is because we have not known and studied what the Constitution has to say. Just as Jesus taught to study God's word in order to prepare for attacks, we should also be studying or at least making an attempt to know what the Constitution has to say, so that when legislation comes around that is contrary to our founding document, we're able to say, um, excuse me, but that's unconstitutional. It is because we have failed in this area of life that we now have legislation that allows for the killing of unborn children. And now we see, in states like California, Bills such as AB 2223 are being passed to kill children that are already born up to 28 days after birth. Take a moment to really think about that. That is a major problem. And it's a problem because people have not known the Constitution enough to say that such a legislative move would be in direct opposition to the right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And by the way, 
I'm not just saying that we, the people, have to know the Constitution enough to determine such things. I'm also talking about the people in legislative positions who should know better. Actually, I was in a class the other day through the Patriot Academy, and they gave a shocking statistic that roughly 48% of our elected officials can't even name the three branches of government. I'm talking about the people that we have elected into Congress. They are the ones who are creating these bills. They should know better. But it's our fault because we are the ones who elected them. So yeah, we need to take a page out of scripture and study the Constitution in addition to studying the Word of God because knowing those things will help us to be good stewards over our lives and over our citizenship both here and in heaven. Even George Mason, the father of the Bill of Rights, said that no free government nor the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people but by a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. That frequent recurrence to fundamental principles is in studying and seeking to understand. I'm not saying to lock yourself in a room, hunker down, and hover over books for hours on end, by the way. I'm just encouraging a habitual practice and reflection of the basic principles that allow for internal and external liberty. So with that all being said, let's jump right into it. So we cannot study the Constitution without first reading the preamble, because the preamble gives us a summary of the purposes of the Constitution. That being said, here is the preamble. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. There are six verbs listed in the preamble that I think are really important to break down and learn from, and they are form, establish, ensure, provide, promote, and secure. The first three verbs will act as our roadmap for today's discussion because those three have so much to say regarding limited government, natural rights, and the consent of the governed. I'm sure you have at least once heard someone claim that the Constitution is a living and breathing document, which throws out the original intent entirely. The living document argument, also known as the non-original argument, suggests that the wording is flexible and can fit the mold of interpretations depending on the emotional state and cultural climate. But isn't that so typical? Of course, these ideologies are being pushed because a flexible and loose interpretation of a document that was intended to be strong and durable goes in line with the throwing away of honor, reason, and integrity. One of the leading points in the non-originalist argument is that going beyond the intentions of the framers is 
unnecessary and unreasonable. So basically what they're saying is that words shouldn't hold any weight. In contrast, the originalist perspective is pretty straightforward. Just read and apply. They saw value in the verbiage and structure of the Constitution. They took heed warnings from framers such as James Madison, who said, What a metamorphosis would be produced in the code of law if all its ancient phraseology were to be taken in its modern sense. Now, when I first sat down to read the Constitution, I think I literally had to read it over about 10 times to get the point. But it was my original lack of understanding that caused me to pick up my dictionary and study the words. Of course, I made the mistake of using a modern dictionary, but God is so good. He redirected my course. And eventually, I was led to do my word searches in the 1828 Webster Dictionary. And by the way, purchasing a Webster's 1828 Dictionary is one of the best educational investments I've ever made. And I highly encourage you to go and purchase one as well. You can access it online, but having a tangible copy is so much better. Actually, I'll include a link for purchasing a copy in the description of this episode in case you decide to buy one. And as I said, getting one is really valuable, especially with the way things are right now. All I can say is that I'm purchasing all the educational tools that I can because as big tech continues to deem truth as dangerous speech, I know I'll still have access to the information I need. Anyway, as I was saying, the definitions are biblical in origin and were written by a founding father. If you want original intent, then how much better can you get than that? So starting with the phrase, form a more perfect union, is where I want to begin. The word perfect means to give to anything all that is requisite or necessary to its nature. As a side note, the word perfect today is an absolute term, but back then the term had a connotation that meant a continual move towards absolute perfection. And the word union means a junction of united existence of spirit, as well as agreement of mind, will, affection, and interests. These terms put together are really beautiful because it's saying that the United States was an improved version of other governmental experiments, attempting to give people all that is necessary to their nature and sought to bring its people together as a family. The idea of American exceptionalism and patriotism comes from the idea of Americans living in one union, the people and their public servants striving to achieve the same goal despite personal differences. The United State of our nation is what has brought us out of difficulty, out of the seasons that are so terrible and the trying times. But that was only possible because the motives were agreed upon. Ensure, protect, and defend liberty. I love that the word interest is included in that definition because it really speaks to the importance of responsibility. As citizens, we have to be seeking out America's best interest in order to protect our families and neighbors. 
I said this in the last episode and I'll say it again just because I love this idea so much. And that is, it is our duty to get civically engaged if we love our families. To love our families means we get involved civically to make sure the government doesn't become the enemy of our families. So we must make sure we vote officials into office that have the intention of acting in America's best interest. The second phrase is establish justice. That's particularly interesting to me because I find myself asking, what is justice if there is no standard? And who has the authority to set the standard? There is less credibility to the principle of justice if there isn't a higher authority above all of mankind. When you take a look at the 1828 definition for justice, it says justice is conformity to laws and principles of rectitude in dealings with men, honesty, integrity, etc. It distributes to every man that right or equity which laws and principles require. I had to take an even deeper dive with this definition because I did not know what the 1828 dictionary had to say about words such as equity and rectitude. Equity is a word thrown around frequently in society nowadays, but in 1828, equity meant impartial distribution. And then rectitude means morality and conforming to a standard of right. Webster's 1828 actually says, the more nearly the rectitude of men approaches the standard of the divine law, the more exalted and dignified is their character. The word rectitude implies there is a rector, which in the 1828 dictionary means ruler, and it says God is a supreme rector of the world. That's literally coming straight out of the dictionary. So, in short, to establish justice is to put into place a system which conforms to laws and principles that are given by a supreme being. All of these set standards and rights given come from a divine law, and to conform to these standards produces a society of honesty and integrity. Lastly, we have the phrase ensure domestic tranquility. The word domestic comes from the word domus which means house. That really reminds me of the scripture that tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, to love our neighbors as our own, as in they are part of the family. That goes back to the first phrase that we looked at with the word union. It all implies that we were intended to be a nation that considers itself to be one big family. Tranquility means to be free from disturbance or agitation. To have tranquility of mind proceeding from conscious rectitude. Ah, there's that word again. You know, I'm going to take a guess and say it must have been important. What? God and his standards being important in the founding of this nation? A divine moral law producing a just and honorable society? No, it can't be. No, 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 no. We've got to just roll with our emotions and, and break down all that is good. You know, just keep burning and looting. I've heard the smoke from all the fires is exempt from the whole climate change thing. I'm being completely sarcastic, but to be honest, I'm sure that's pretty similar to what some of them might actually say. All jokes aside, though, 
if these were the principles that the founders established, if these principles are stating the family dynamic that is supposed to be seen among the people of the United States of America, then how is it that our founders are painted out to be racist and irreligious? It's as I said, there's a truth that has been covered up, and knowing the truth is what will produce a revival of uprightness in this nation. So now that we've covered the significant written details of the first three verbs of the preamble, I think talking about the unwritten implementations of these listed goals is really important. And those are limited government, consent of the governed, and security of natural rights. The framers of the Constitution had a set standard in mind for what a just government would look like. That standard consisted of having the consent of the governed and the security of natural rights. Receiving the consent of the governed implies that there is an ability for permission to be given. But sometimes society will lead down a path that undermines their natural rights through their consent. Sort of like how we have a natural right to living healthy lives, yet can undermine the natural right by giving consent to our hand and fork in the action of overeating or eating unhealthy foods that will eventually cause health problems. For example, if you're going to eat an entire chocolate cake, you must first consent to your hand and fork in order for them to reach your mouth time and time again. Even though you've given permission to the food to be consumed, you have at the same time rejected your natural right to a happy and healthy life. Just as easily you could give an example of the people consenting to a law permitting slavery. Of course we know that slavery is in opposition to the natural right of life and liberty, but my point is that the two go hand in hand. Consent and assertion act as their own separation of power and check and balance system. There is a tendency for people to use power at times against their own good. A key objective that was addressed in the Constitution and also in the Federalist Papers was how to avoid the issue of majority tyranny. In the past, we have talked about democracy and how the founders understood that democracy would lead to majority tyranny and inevitably the government would collapse by means of self-execution. A democracy cannot stand for long because the people fight tooth and claw without ever coming to an agreement, which puts the government in a state of stress and eventually becomes so inundated by contention that it just murders itself. How could the founders ensure that the consent of the governed would not turn into an irrational assertion of values that change at the instant the people change their minds? To avoid majority-induced tyranny, you can either eliminate the people's freedoms or you can establish a higher governing standard to protect their liberties just in case the culture decides to one day democratically do away with their liberties. Reason and passion, if not kept in check, will always end up attacking each other and producing factions from within. That's why we have a representation structure in our government system. Representatives will be presented with the emotional and rationale of the people they represent. 
When overwhelmed by the emotional stances and the variety of said emotional stances, the representatives will have no other choice but to turn to rational argumentation and use discernment in deciding what holds true. If someone comes to you telling you how they feel and then tells you what they know, it's easier to give them feedback and input according to what they know because ultimately their feelings have no authority. You cannot reason with their emotions. You can only reason with their knowledge. A great example of this can be seen with the issue of abortion. You cannot reason with a person who feels that it is okay to kill an unborn child because in their eyes they believe that it's their body and therefore their choice. But you can reason with someone who understands biology because they know the facts, which state that the embryo that is growing into a fetus, which is transforming into a child, has a completely different and separate set of DNA from the beginning, therefore making it an entirely different human being. So my point being is that you cannot reason with irrational people. On that note, there's a saying that I really love, and it's that you have to determine whether someone is a suspect or a subject. Are they going to be willing to be a subject and listen to what you have to say? Or are they going to be a suspect and just shoot down and attack everything that you present them with? You must seek out the facts and align your emotion with facts, not the other way around. That is why it is so important to elect representatives who have an understanding of what it means to stand for truth and for God, because a rejection of God means a lack of reverence for his word. If his word gives a commandment to love others, the representatives who reject the Lord will not know how to love and serve the people they are in position representing. It is then that representatives trample over the people in order to achieve power. Another extremely foundational principle in the Constitution is that of limited government. Back in high school, I can remember getting so annoyed with the curriculum I was being presented with because they had completely removed God from the picture. What's really sad is they no longer teach students to think deeply. If they did, then the youth would recognize that things like limited government alone cannot be explained in the absence of a singular divine creator. God must be a key element in government because if there is no God, there is no such thing as limited government. If the argument is that the people limit the government, then give me one example in history where people in power willfully denied acquiring more of it for themselves. The government is composed of people, and people won't limit their own power unless morally directed to do so. Power given free reign in government institutions always leads to tyranny, and power given free reign in the population through democracy always leads to anarchy. But if a higher moral standard is given by a just and divine leader, both sources of human power can be regulated by the conscience and morality written on the heart. Why? Because it's this that allows for limited government, and limited government reminds government officials 
of the jurisdictional boundaries they cannot cross. It all goes back to what we looked at earlier with those first three beautiful goals in the preamble. To form a union of people pursuing the best interests of their nation and their families. To establish justice stemming from an almighty source. And to ensure the domestic tranquility of the family of united citizens. If government isn't limited by a divine law first, it can't be limited by a temporal one, and the formation of a more perfect union will fail. Natural rights won't be protected if, in the establishment of justice, there is no respect for principles from a higher power. And lastly, if domestic tranquility is to be had, the consent of the governed is the signature needed to do the job. I truly hope an appreciation for our Constitution has grown in your heart just as it has in mine. More importantly, I hope this information has invigorated you to pursue and exercise the beautiful truths of life. I know sometimes things can be discouraging because by looking at our circumstances, it seems like there's no hope. But to be completely honest, I think at times we get lost in the big picture and forget to look at the little improvements. Because in reality, big changes cannot be made without the little things adjusting over time first. As much as I'd love to see drastic changes take place, I must be grateful and joyful in recognizing the little things that hopefully will eventually make a big difference. That is my encouragement to you, to rejoice in the Lord and implore him to give you eyes to see the blessings that are set before you. Trust me, they are there, even in situations where it truly seems like there are none. There's always something to be grateful for, and it is our gratitude that will give us the steam to carry on in our attempts to make changes in culture that will hopefully shift the overall mindset of America. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you are enjoying the Rooted to Truth podcast, I would be honored if you would share these episodes with your sphere of influence. My goal is to just inform more and more people about these really amazing historical and cultural topics. And I cannot do that alone. So I'm asking you for your help. Just sharing this episode with one person would mean the world to me. Thank you so much for all of your support, and I pray you have a blessed day.